Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. You may be seated. Thank you, Keegan, for the reading of the word. I know you stood for a long time, but how many of you love God's word? Okay, come on. We love God's word. Well, I'm excited you made made it here this morning, soon to be afternoon. Turn to your neighbor and say, man, I'm so glad you made it. You look really good. Tell them, man, I, I, I think you're a pretty cool person. You can say that as well. You're a pretty cool person. All right, turn to your other neighbor and say, go Cowboys. It's, it's week 18. I knew I would get some of you. Go Cowboys. Come on. Packers, that's, that's all right. If you're an Eagle fan, we just ask you to leave at this time. No, we love you. Hey, I, I just like to set the record straight. I also have a free throw record at Centennial High School, 93% free throw shooting. It's probably like the best in the state as well. Anyways, let's move on. I was a pretty good athlete back in the day, sort of, not really. Um, hey, today, my, we're, we're entering into a new season. Uh, we're starting a new sermon series, How to Deal with Your Crap. It's actually how to deal with your stuff, okay? So over the next six to eight weeks, we're going to be talking about, okay, how do we deal with our stuff? Anybody have any stuff? About 18 of you, okay? First service, they were in denial, all right? We have stuff. How do we deal with our stuff? Because ultimately, my dream for this church as we move into 2023 is that our capacity for God would grow. Our capacity to hear his voice would grow. I am, I am not content with just talk only. I, am, I, I, I want for this church to experience the power of God. Paul said, hey, I, I brought the gospel, and it wasn't just in talk, but it came with power and with full assurance and with the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of people that, that we're called to be. So how do we increase our capacity for God? How do we walk in the freedom from all the inferior voices that we're enslaved to right now? How do we do that? How would we break off addictions and sin patterns and all the different things that spoil our relationship with God and our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with other people? We're going to begin that talk today. So I'm going to take five hours. I wish I had that time. And I want to talk to you about Saul and David. Some of you were thinking as we were reading the passage, like, what, what, why, why are we reading Saul and why are we reading David? Well, I think it's important that we understand the difference between Saul and David. And as we begin to understand the difference between Saul and David in these two passages of scripture and who they were, we can begin to understand the foundation piece for healing and deep transformation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. How many of you want that? None of us, you came, you woke up, you came to church, you said, okay, I want 2023 to be absolutely awful. I want to live in dysfunction. I want to lie to myself. I want to hurt people. No, right? Okay, few of you. You came to church because you want God. Or some of you want God. At least you want, you want peace and you want human flourishing. You, you want life, right? That's built into your spiritual makeup, whether you're a Christian here today or not. So 
What is the difference between Saul and David will be the foundation piece for our moving forward into 2023 in spiritual maturity and increasing our capacity for God. So here we come. We didn't have a chance to talk through the background of King Saul and David, but King Saul's story is tragic. As his story, kind of the biblical drama unfolds and centers on King Saul, we see him gradually descending into neurosis and um, into paranoia, paranoia, and he ends up taking his life through his armor bearer on the, on the, battle, on the battleground. So King Saul is, is a tragic story. It's a horrifying story of someone who started out really well and ended up pretty bad, pretty tragic. Then we have King David. King David is described as the greatest king in Israel's history. It is also in the Bible called a man after God's own heart. I don't know about you, but that's what I want to be said of me. A man after, he was a man after God's own heart? And when we begin to discuss what David did, he'd be like, whoa, hold up, right? So before we get to that, we have to understand again the difference between the two. And when you look at their profiles and their personal histories, you'll begin to realize there's essentially nothing different between both King Saul and King David. What you find in their profiles is both are chosen by God to be king. Both are wealthy and handsome. David is a redhead. I don't need to say anything else. <laughs> both, it's, it's funny, both, both of them possess remarkable humility. David is, is seen and described as the youngest in the family. Like this is a humble situation, right? David knows who he is in the pecking order, in the hierarchy of, of Israelite society. Saul self-describes himself as the least in his family and his family is the least in his tribe, and his tribe is the least in Israel. So both these guys are, are pretty humble. Also, both are spirit-filled. Saul was filled with the spirit. Uh, after he was anointed king by Samuel, he goes on the road, some prophets find him, and he starts prophesying. So he's a spirit-filled, crazy charismatic. And then we have King David. King David is anointed by Samuel. Samuel anoints him, breaks open the flask, all the oil runs over him, and the Bible tells us that he was anointed and filled with the Spirit. So both are Spirit-filled. Both are also larger-than-life heroes. David killed Goliath, and Saul defeated the Ammonites. So it's interesting. I mean, it's just, there's virtually no difference between them. Maybe one wore Prada and the other one wore Gucci. I don't know, right? But they were charismatic. They were athletic. They were military geniuses. And here's the thing, both of them were favored by God. So what is the difference between these two? Because they were favored, they were wealthy, they were handsome, they had everything, they were wearing Gucci, but both of them sinned. Both had sin. What's interesting is Saul, as Keegan read in our teaching passage, Saul takes on, his is his sin, Saul takes on the cultic responsibility of the prophet and priest Samuel by orchestrating a sacrifice before the battle began because Samuel, check this out, was late. So, so he presumes a, a position, right, a cultic position of sacrificing some animals to get God's favor before going into the battle, which he shouldn't have, but he did all of that because his mentor failed to deliver on his promise. Who's in sin? Samuel said he was going to be there at the appointed time, and yet King Saul, what did he do? Because he didn't see Samuel, and because Samuel was late, he decided to do something that was condemned in the Bible. Then we come to King David. King David has a dysfunctional court, 
Uh, we know his family is profoundly dysfunctional. Uh, this is crazy, but he sleeps with his best friend's wife. And then he has his best friend killed. I mean, if you grew up in the 90s, this is Jerry Springer, guys. <laughs> or if you're like me, if you're a 46-year-old man, you have seven children, and it's Friday night, and you have some time to, to rest, you turn on the TV because you never watch any TV, and at 9 o'clock, you watch 60 Minutes. And then after an hour of watching all the making of this murder scene, you regret it fully. So this is, this is like David's story. David... David, if, if you were to compare the two, and I'm going to get to this point here pretty quick, compare David's sin with Saul's sin, I think David was more dysfunctional than King Saul. So how did David have a large, big capacity for God and King Saul didn't? That's the question that I want to explore here today. Before I do that, I just want to go a little bit further and I want to talk about sin. Everyone say sin. sin. I'm going to go through this really quick and then we're going to get back to David and Saul and then we'll land this plane in two hours, all right? So what is sin? What is sin? The Bible first describes sin in a relational manner. We have in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter two and three, particularly in chapter three, sin is seen not as a forensic legal thing, as like I'm guilty before God because I disobeyed him, nor is it simply seen, sin that is, as a wrongdoing or a misdeed. What we find in Genesis chapter three is that Adam and Eve disobey God and it spoils the relationship that they have with God. So first, what we find in the opening chapters of Genesis is that sin is about a broken relationship with God. In fact, as you see the unfolding drama of scripture and you get to the prophets, the prophets describe sin so relationally as a radical divorce between God and humans. You see, the human predicament isn't that we just do wrong things every now. The human predicament, please understand this, is that sin has disturbed the relationship that we have with God. And you were created, you don't have to believe this today, but you were created by God to be in relationship and to work out a partnership so you could reign in God's wisdom and love over creation. Like some of you, that you put that in your theological pipe and smoke it, or not, whatever. I know some of you are like, what are we talking about reigning over creation? I just want to try to get a hold of my anxiety. I just want to try to figure things out. We'll get to that point over the next few weeks, but it's important to understand that sin is all about a broken relationship. In fact, as one expert says, sin is a disturbance of shalom. Shalom, we talk about this a lot, is the Hebrew word which describes a world where every relationship, could you imagine a world like this? Every relationship is well-ordered. 49er fans are hanging with cowboy fans, right? Cat people love dog people, and dog people love cat people, right? Like your families and your extended family members, there's a well-orderedness to it. In fact, Shalom describes uh, every relationship in your life as a well-ordered thing. So your relationship with God is well-ordered. How many of you would like that? A relationship where there's no disturbance in your communication with God? A few of you like that. Shalom describes no disturbance, no spoiling in your relationship with God. It also describes a well-ordered relationship with yourself, where anxiety is not your defining trait, but peace. Where love is your defining trait, not, not fear. Where righteousness and justice are your defining traits, not the abuse of people, or your hatred, or your violence. Like you're a whole person. That's what Shalom says 
is a well-ordered relationship with yourself. Not only that, but that well-ordered relationship with God and yourself is going to spill over into your relationship with other people. It, it cannot not happen. When you're right in, in terms of this relational dynamic with God and your, in, in your partnership with him, it's going to influence every relationship. So your relationship with people, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your coworker, your, your relationship with just people that you interact with on a daily basis is well-ordered. You're not an eagle road shouting obscenities because someone crossed in front of you, right? You're not, that, that funny? Okay, no, that's for all the other people that go to the other churches, right? Your relationship is not defined with other people as, as angry, as resentful, as defined by bitterness. It's defined by love and righteousness, peace and joy. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. That's shalom. And not only that, but your relationship with creation, your vocation, your purpose, what God has designed you to be and to become right now is well-ordered. You're not confused. You're not searching. You're not grasping for God. What do you want me to do? You have a clear understanding of God's plan. The thing is, sin disturbs all of that. Sin, in other words, is the opposite of genuine love. It's anti-love. And sin is at its heart, if you want to break down the anatomy of sin, is a desire to define reality on its own terms. You want to, you want to define things over and against God. Like sin is sin. Can I get any man of that? Sin is sin. Right? And yeah, there are different consequences to sin, and there should be. Like psychopaths and murdering is a little bit different than gossiping about your neighbor in terms of consequences. But if you were to break down both of those sins and you were to get to the root of both of those, they're the same people. Gossiping about your neighbor is rooted in contempt and it's anti love, and you want to define things on your own term. Killing someone, I hope no one killed anybody, but we'll pray for you if you have, all right? But at the root of murder is also contempt and it's anti-love. That goes without saying. Yes, the consequences are different, but the root, the foundation is the same. So sin is a disturbance of every relationship that we have. And it becomes a deeply entrenched pattern in all of human life. It's largely unconscious and it's present in our bodies. But the reality of sin is very complex. It involves um, trauma and wounds and brokenness and weakness. Because we live in a broken, fallen world, we all have wounds. We all have difficult things that we have to process in terms of emotions. We've had authority figures speak over us and curse us. And so we live, for some of us, from a cursed consciousness. Right? We have past histories. We have things that have been done to us. People have sinned against us. So trauma and wounds and even weaknesses they're not sinful, but because we live in a broken world, which is the result of sin, sin dominates all of human life. All of human life. Weaknesses. We all have weaknesses. We have a proclivity towards anxiety. Some of us have a proclivity towards just, we, we, can't, we can't control our anger and we lose control. Some of us, we just, we tend to, we're really sensitive and we get, and again, this is not necessarily sinful, but we, we can turn to sin when we become resentful because someone didn't notice us or whatever. So there's a complexity to sin. There's wounds and trauma. There's drama. There's brokenness. There's weaknesses. Some of you, you binge watch Making a Murder way too long, all right? Or Criminal Minds. That is a sin, I would say. All right. Back up. Bad joke. I won't use that. All right, let's move on. Ever again. But sin is complex in that it involves all those different things. However, sin 
ultimately describes our deepest inclination as going the opposite direction of God in his love. That's sin. Not just wrongdoing. Not just you're guilty before God includes those. But it's a disturbance of love. It's a disturbance of your, it's what you long for, people. It's a disturbance of your relationship with the Holy Spirit. So back to David and Saul. So what's the difference between the two? What is the difference? The difference is not because one is more or less sinful, wicked, soulless, neurotic, or narcissistic than the other. One is not um, a seven and a nine on an Enneagram and that somehow there's a decisive difference between those two and their shadow side is really weird, right? One is not like a life, one had a life coach and one didn't. One is not, and I heard this a lot of messages before and I think it's, it's a wrong way to talk about David and Saul, that David was a man after God's own heart because he was a worshiper and King Saul wasn't. I don't think that's the case. Now, of course, David was a worshiper and we don't know about King Saul. I think the decisive factor between Saul and David was how they dealt with sin. What made David a man after God's own heart what made David have a huge capacity for God and not Saul was that David was honest about who he was while Saul was not. Saul denied and pretended that he was right. David took responsibility for his decisions and he knew and he confessed that he was wrong. Here we come to Saul's response in 1 Samuel chapter 13, which Keegan read. We come to verse 11. Samuel said, what have you done? This is what Saul said. You guys still with me? When I saw that the people were scattering from me, what is that? He's rationalizing. And he says, and that you did not come within the days appointed. He's blame shifting. And then he goes, and, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, whatever that word is. What is he doing? He's making excuses. Then we come to verse 12, and he said, and I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. What is that? That's magical thinking. See, I have seven children, and they do this all the time when I have to deal with their sin. It's funny. It, it kind of goes like this. I go, okay, so-and-so, you, you did this. This is sin. We need to talk through this. And I'm going to lead them into repentance. And this is usually what happens. Well, they're like, Dad, I just had a really bad night. I think I ate something. I woke up with a headache. I had some nightmares. And then something came on me. I was feeling kind of funny. And then kind of this, and it, they don't say it, but it's basically like this. There's an ancient supernatural present from, like, presence from 2,000 years ago. It took over my body. <laughs> and I decided to hit my sister. Right? So I usually have to come back to, no, the devil didn't make you do that. Your sister did not make you do anything. Your brother didn't make you do anything, Quincy. All right, I just let you know who it was. I'm... He is an incredible kid. I love that kid. He's so smart, loves Jesus. But what happens is we see this in our children, but we also see it in our own lives. We make excuses. We deny the reality of who we are. We play pretend at church and it just stinks. The reason why you're bored in church is not because we're boring or even that you're boring is because you're just not willing to broker in truth. You're not willing to be honest with your stuff. And you just live in this weird, static inability to sense God's presence. 
and you wonder why. Wow, everyone else is experiencing God's presence and I'm not. Why? Well, it could be the case that you're lying to yourself. What does Saul do that David does not do? Saul denies the reality of who he is. He's playing pretend with Samuel. It's funny, uh, my son, I didn't know, Riley, everyone say Riley. I was sitting in the back after first service and my door was open in my office and I looked out and I saw this little Spider-Man figure. Full dress, I, couldn't, I didn't even know who it was, but full Spider-Man, you couldn't even see his face. It was a costume. And I'm like, oh, I think that's my son, Riley. And what's interesting is Riley loves Spider-Man and he went into a kid's class and he didn't even take off and no one knows who he is. Everybody thinks he's the, like these four year or three year olds, they're like, oh my God, Spider-Man's in the house. Uh, Tracy told me that he did, because he wanted to eat, he turned away and he took up, took up his hat and started eating food, then he put it back down. I'm Spider-Man. Everyone, everyone thinks, oh, Spider-Man's in the house, but I know Riley, that kid's a troublemaker. He ain't no Spider-Man. He's playing pretend. He's playing pretend. Are you hearing me? We, thank God you don't come to church dressed up as Thor and put on some crazy costume, but we do it anyways. We come to church, we play pretend, we say, oh, we got everything together. No, you don't. There's not one person in this room that has their stuff together. I'm sorry. And if we're going to move forward in 2023 and we want to get our act together, not just become the better version of ourselves, but grow our capacity for God and his love and for righteousness and for building for the kingdom of God, we got to start with not stinking lying to ourselves. So lied to himself. But look at David's response. I love this in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12. Samuel comes to, or excuse me, Nathan comes to um, David, gives a long story, it's a parable about a rich man who takes a poor man's little lamb, kills it, and then David screams, I'm, I'm, whoever this man is, I'm gonna kill him. Nathan then turns to, springs the trap, rhetorically turns back to David and says, David, you are that man. And there's a little back and forth, and then Nathan says a few things, and then we come to verse uh, I, I don't know, we'll go first, probably 11 or whatever. I, I won't just read it for you. But basically, David's then response after Nathan calls him out with his sin is this. I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. Six words. I have sinned. It's me. See, David had a huge heart for God. He had a huge capacity for God not because he was less sinful than King Saul. It was because he was honest about his stuff. He was honest about his sin. He was honest about the affair. He was honest about killing his best friend. He was honest about his dysfunctional family. He was honest, honest, honest. That is what makes a person after God's own heart. Guys, there is no such thing as a perfect person. Why are we acting? Now, 
Why are we acting as if we have no issues? All of us are in the same boat. The issue is not whether we sin. The issue is how we deal with our sin. Am I condoning sin? Absolutely not, right? And I believe through the power of the Holy Spirit, good things can happen to our mind and to our embodied selves. You are a vast spiritual being. You, you, you have so much depth you don't realize, and God wants to transform that and direct that for his kingdom purposes. You have been called for such a time as this. God has a specific purpose for you. He knows your name, and you are not defined by sin. Can I get an amen to that? If you are in Christ today, you would say, I am a follower of Jesus. Guess what? Guess, guess what? The good news is your primary identity is not that you're a sinner and that you suck and you got a lot of crap and you better get your act together and you're a 49er fan. You need salvation. What is the issue? The issue, your primary identity, is that you are a son and daughter of King Jesus. That is who you are. You belong to the family of God. You have been cleansed, you have been forgiven, you have been set right. The Holy Spirit has been poured out in your life. You have been baptized in God's grace and his love and his goodness. Come on, somebody. And yet we still have to deal with our sin. Sin is the secondary thing after your first and primary identity. You are a son and daughter of King Jesus, who has to now address sin in your life. So why are we talking about sin? Well, I mentioned it because I want us to grow our capacity for God this year. I want the love of God to flow through us. I'm tired as your pastor about the talk. I want to move beyond talk. Talk is good. I want to move beyond it and I want to move into the power of God. I want to see God do miraculous things, not only in this church, but churches in this valley. And I want to see God do miraculous things in our city. I want to see lives transform. I have a number that God put in my heart that I want to see saved this year. I'm believing for thousands of people to give their lives to King Jesus. I'm believing my neighbors are going to come to Jesus soon. I'm believing that lives are going to be transformed through us as a collective body. But we have to have a big capacity for God. We cannot minister from a place of deficit. We can't minister from a place of denial and lying because when we lie to ourselves, we diminish our capacity for God's love and his power and his grace. Again, I think I said it before, but I'm going to say it again. Some of you cannot even sense the presence of God. And you're living life from a deficit. And no one would even know it because you know how to fake it. My desire is to convince you, man, you don't have to live that way. I say this in love. You don't have to live from a place of, of, of a deficit. You don't have to live from emptiness. You can live from overflowing love no matter what you go through. How do we do that? Well, we got to be honest. We can no longer lie to ourselves. Some of you here today, you love Jesus. You've been serving him, but you're crippled by, crippled by seething resentment and anger and maybe even secret addictions. I'm going to pray at the end of the service that God's going to set you free. You're going to be free from inferior voices. You're going to be free from weekly rhythms that, that sabotage God's purpose in your life. Ruth Burroughs suggests that the spiritual tragedy of our day is not that we have weaknesses and sin in the church. 
Right, newsflash. I'm gonna give you a little secret. Okay, you ready for this? This is gonna be really profound. Everyone, I said it before, but I'm gonna say it again. Everyone in this room has a lot of issues and sin. Let's, don't give me that sheep-like glazed over look and turn to your neighbor. Mm-hmm. It's like I've been preaching a long, long time and I know when people are getting it and I know when people aren't. Stop it. Yes, you're a child of God and yes, you love God, but you are broken. And see, the problem we take, and, and we, we do this because Adam and Eve did this, is that when they disobeyed God, what happened? God came back, not as a storm theophany, but he came back to bring life. And what did Adam and Eve do? What was their primary emotion? They said, we were afraid. Why were they afraid? Because they were naked. Why were you naked? Because they disobeyed God. And what did they do? What did they do? They hid themselves. How about, what, what, if we make, what if we make a declaration, and this might be a little bit weird, that we're no longer going to hide. That we're going to be honest with our spouse. Maybe, maybe some of you need to go back to your family and your kids and be honest. Hey, I, I've, I've been making bad decisions. Please forgive me. Maybe we need to be honest with people that we trust. Maybe we, we need to take some stuff to God this week and say, God, okay, there's some things that I, I need to give to you and direct towards you. The spiritual tragedy of our day is not that we have weakness and sin in the church, back to Ruth Burroughs. It's, it's our lack of confession and honesty about our sin that should trouble us. Not sin. Yes, we have sin. As one expert says, the gospels emphasize emphatically that it is not weakness or sin that is problematic within our relationship with God. Can I just say this really quick? Is sin problematic? Absolutely. But here's the good news. Jesus has come. John tells us that he is the word made flesh. He is the logos and he has dwelt among us. Literally, that means he has tabernacled among us and he is full of grace and truth. So Jesus, John is telling us, is the walking, breathing, what? Tabernacle. Like, what does that even mean, Chris? Well, when you go back to the Old Testament, what was the tabernacle designed for? Well, God gave instructions to Moses because God needed to cleanse creation and his people from all the pollution of sin. So he created a tabernacle and these cultic practices by which God's people could come because God wanted to cleanse the people from sin because God wanted to meet with them. And God wanted to restore them back into relationship and then give them their purpose back. So when John tells us that Jesus is the walking, breathing tabernacle, he is saying something emphatically, that Jesus is the one who went to the cross and through his death, he, he cleansed the entire cosmos of its pollution and of its sin and even more, of all the sickness and all the death and everything that has spoiled God's good world. Jesus took it in in his body and he cleansed the world of all the things which disturbed our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with other people, and even our relationship with creation. Am I preaching too hard today? And then he came back from the dead and he poured out his spirit. People like, well, like, why couldn't God just pour out his spirit? Well, 
He couldn't pour out his spirit on a, on a polluted creation. Jesus had to go to the cross and in his body, he had to absorb all of it on a cosmic scale, all of the sin and the pain and the weakness and the tension of creation. And then he came back from the dead and he poured out his spirit and he offers wholeness to us. Full of grace, full of truth. That God wants to meet us in our sin. The reason why we can be honest about our sin and our weaknesses is because God meets us with grace, not in judgment. So the gospels emphasize emphatically that it's not weakness or sin that is problematic within our relationship with God, but rationalization, denial, lying, and denying the truth. When we deny the truth, our soul withers. Our, our capacity to sense God's presence, to hear his voice is diminished. Our hearts become hard. And then our minds and our perspective on reality becomes warped. So one author says this as I close, be careful not to lie, not to um, distance yourself from the truth because the real danger is that by lying, you begin to distance and warp your own hearts. If you lie to yourself long enough, eventually you will lose sight of the truth and believe the lie and become unable any longer to tell the difference between the truth and the lie. What becomes unforgivable about this is not that God does not want to forgive, but that you no longer want to be forgiven. God easily forgives all of your weaknesses through his son Jesus and your sin and will always forgive anyone who wants to be forgiven, but you can so warp your own conscience that you see God's truth and forgiveness itself as a lie, as Satan, and you see your own life as truth and forgiveness. That is the only sin that truly puts us outside of God's mercy, not because God refuses to extend mercy further, but because you can look mercy in the eye and call it a lie. Wow. So what do we do as I close here? What is our response? Well, our response is let's stop pretending, let's stop denying that we don't have issues, and let's practice the weekly rhythm of confession. Confession, I believe, is not just a one-time thing. Confession is not just one thing you do, come up to the altar, you confess your sins, and then you're good, and you get to go to heaven. No, confession, yes, starts with you saying, God, I want to embrace your values, I've been wrong, I want to follow you. But confession is a weekly practice, a weekly rhythm, where we learn to be honest with God. And when, we, when we're honest, guess what? Guess what, guys? Because God only brokers in truth. He doesn't broker in unreality. And, and, and here's the good news. Because God knows you, guys, you can't fake out God. Isn't it weird? When we come to God, we're like, ah, right? We, don't, we leave some stuff out when we come to God in prayer. And we're not totally honest with ourselves and we kind of like condemn ourselves because we're like, if God really knew who I was, he would reject me in a place of prayer. That is absolutely false because God already knows who you are at the bottom of your existence. And his desire is that you would come to him because guys, there is only one person in the universe that can heal you cleanse you, change you, mold you, shape you, empower you, lift you up, 
call things out, give good purposes over your life, and it's not a life hack, and those are good, and it's not a technique, and those are good things. It is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Come on. And it is the Holy Spirit who wants to empower you and increase your capacity for God this year. If we want miracles, if we want the power of God, if we want to see salvations, if we want to see the healing of God in our church services and throughout the week, we must practice confession on a weekly basis. Paul said, it's not that I've already attained, but I press forward. So how do we do this? Well, I just... This is what you can do. Let me do this first. David, as we close, gives us a pattern for confession. He writes in Psalm 32, 1 through 7, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. When David says no deceit, he's not saying that, okay, God will only bless the person who is absolutely perfect. Not saying that. What he is saying is that God will bless the person who is honest about their sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. Do you see when you keep silent, you deny and you pretend, and you kind of fake it until you try to make it and you never make it? Guess what happens, right? You, you, you just waste away. Your capacity for God diminishes. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. That's what happens to us. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We, guys, we, we have a tendency in the Western world to take this for granted, that God forgives people. When you're living in the ancient Near East, for a God to forgive someone would have been absolutely revolutionary. The gods were malevolent. They didn't care about you. They were immoral. They were capricious. You could not trust the gods. You would enter into a sacrificial maybe relationship with them to simply try to placate their warmongering wrath. But what we find in the Old Testament is that God is not like that. He is a God that is constant. He is good. He is faithful. And he forgives our sin. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. It's a pattern of, of not just managing sin, but we have a pattern of confession and honesty. Psalm uh, 51, I'll read a few verses and then we'll be done here. I want to pray for you. Psalm of David, this is after Nathan came to him. David responds by writing this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David does not first start with his sin. He starts with the character of God. He emphasizes the three aspects of God's character that we find in Exodus chapter 34. Read it, six and seven. You are merciful, you're gracious, and you're compassionate. That's, that, that was David's only hope. God, I suck, you don't. You're good, right? And then he goes, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin because I know you're so good. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He continues, behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. This is what I want for us. And renew a right spirit within me. Renew life in us today. Cast me not away from your presence. God, I want a bigger capacity for you. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy. How many of you want joy? Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The pattern of confession is really simple. Prayer, the prayer of David in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 is not a place to be good, in the words of one author, but it's a place of honest confession. Prayer is a place where we cling to the goodness of God and we're honest about who we are. Prayer should be a place where we can bring the foulest thing, the most defiling thing, the dirtiest thing to God, and it will be met with God's goodness. You see, Paul wrote this in Romans. It's a book in the New Testament. And Paul said this, where sin abounds, grace abounds that much more. You see, when you practice honest confession and you're honest about your stuff, guess what's going to happen? you're going to begin to realize the depths of God's mercy. How can you realize the depths of God's mercy and his love and his grace when you don't tell him anything? When you deny that you even have a problem? We, guys, some of us, most of us are thinking, okay, I, I, I'm kind of honest about my stuff. We all are. So let's move that to the side. Everyone said amen. We're all kind of honest about our stuff. But most of us are really not honest about the deeper stuff. And here's the thing. When you give the deeper stuff and sin and resentments and the issues that have plagued your heart and the anger and the lust and the addictions, when you give that to God, guess what's going to happen? You're going to realize that God's mercy is deeper always. God's grace has more depth than your sin. And this is why our capacity for God grows. This is why our capacity for love grows. Luke 7, 47, it's a fascinating story. Jesus comes to a house. Pharisees are there, and then there's a woman there. She's called in the Bible a sinner. It was used as an epithet that was directed towards her by the Pharisees. And the woman comes and washes the feet of Jesus, welcomes Jesus, weeps over the feet of Jesus. The Pharisees do not welcome him. These are the religious leaders of, of Jesus' day. Jesus then responds turns first to the woman and says in verse 47, therefore I will tell you her sins, this woman, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, for she loved much. But then he turns to the Pharisees and he says, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. He who's forgiven little, loves little. What does that even mean? As I close here. Forgiven, little, Love little. Does that mean there, there's a hierarchy in terms of sin? That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is saying those who do not acknowledge their need for forgiveness or deny that they need forgiveness, their capacity for love will be severely diminished. In other words, your capacity for God and your capacity for love this year is bound up and you're willing to be honest that you need forgiveness all the time. 
And the good news is, is that when you come to God in a place of honest confession, God always meets you there with love and grace. This is why I think people think that relationship with God is boring because they're never honest with God with their stuff. They never bring their stuff to God. When you begin to learn to bring your stuff in a place of honest confession and direct it to Jesus, you don't just self-talk yourself out of sin. You don't try to manage your sin. You don't leave stuff out of your prayer conversation with him, but you practice a weekly rhythm of confessing your sin, even your weaknesses, even the stuff that you're going through to God. You will experience fresh grace, renewal of life, bigger capacity, anointing, Holy Spirit empowerment, and your life will be dramatically transformed by God. So what's the last thing that we can do this week? I'm just going to suggest you don't have to do this, but I, I recommend our whole church read through Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Try Maybe take 30 minutes this week. If you can do it every day, that's great. But maybe at least once this week and read through it and pray through it. And then I would like you to do this. You don't have to do this, but maybe take a pen and a paper and journal your prayer of confession. Write it down. God, Please forgive me for this. Just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Some of you might not be aware of certain things that you've done. The Holy Spirit will bring to light certain things. He, he always comes and sheds light in, in the darkness of our lives. But I like us to practice this at least 30 minutes this week. You take Psalm 51, you pray through it. Take, take Psalm 32, pray through it. Maybe journal your prayer, bring your honest confession to God, and, and, and just wait. Just wait. And then, if you're really courageous and you want to take a big risk, do this for a month and see what God does. That's my challenge. And then, if you, if you really want a big capacity for God, do it over the next six months, 30 minutes a week, just confessing your sins, confessing your brokenness, confessing the wounds. And we'll talk more about how we can do this over the next several weeks. And then if you're really, you really want a big capacity for God, do this for the rest of the year. And I guarantee, guys, you will see God, like you've never seen him before. Your capacity to hear his voice will grow. Your vision of reality will no longer be shrunken. God will expand and enlarge and increase your vision. And you'll begin to see things you've never seen. And everyone said amen. amen. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes as we pray. Father, I thank you for your presence here today. As your eyes are closed, your heads are bowed. You say, Chris, I need Jesus. I need him to cleanse me of my sin, my junk, stuff. I, I'm not totally sure what it means to follow Jesus, but today I want to make a decision to follow him. I, I want a fresh start. I want renewal of life. I want a bigger capacity for love and purpose and hope and life. And today you, you've come and you can just sense the presence of God, or maybe not. Maybe you're here and you just, you just want that. That's also God's presence. You just have a desire, like, I just, I need it. Some of you, you're like, I just, I need God. And if that's you here today, maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, but you're like, today's the day. Maybe some of you, you've kind of been doing your own thing. You know you're, you're going in the opposite direction of God, but today you want to make a decision to say, okay, I'm going to open my life up to the God that you're talking about. And I want him to cleanse me of my sin. I'm going to put my trust in him. And I just want to follow him. And I want to see where this takes us. If that's you, if you fall in any of those groups or those categories with your eyes closed, your heads bowed, 
On the count of three, I just want you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. One, two, three. Anyone like that? Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. All over the place. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Awesome. 18, 19. I don't want to double count. That's wonderful. Maybe 20. 20 people that God's going to do something profound in their lives. Church, can we thank God this morning? All right, if you raise your hand, I'd like you to take your hand, put it in your heart. Keep your eyes closed, your heads bowed. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you're pouring out your spirit in this room right now. You're doing a healing work. You're doing a forgiving work. Lord, help us to be honest today as your people. Lord, our desire is to follow you, Jesus, in 2023. We want a bigger capacity. So if you raise your hand, your hand's on your heart right now, I just want you to repeat this simple prayer after me. You're simply inviting the presence of God into your life. Church would also like you to repeat this after me. Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my sin. I give you all my stuff. And I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for cleansing me. I want to follow you. I want my capacity for you to grow. I want a fresh start today. So I thank you for your healing. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen. 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 Okay, it's 1244. We're done, but I got to pray one more thing. Mark, come up. Keep your eyes um, closed, your heads bowed. You guys are amazing. Thank you for doing this. Father, I thank you now. Church, could you just... Actually, I'd like you to stand. Could you stand for this part? If you're a member of this church, I, you know, I'm speaking to you, and maybe you're not, maybe you're kind of checking things out, that's great, so you don't have to do this, but if this is your church and you're like, Chris, I want a bigger capacity for God, and I want to change some of my weekly rhythms this year, I want to structure my life around honest confession, and I want to broker in truth. I just, I want more. I want more of God this year. I want to be free. I've been listening to inferior voices. I just want to be who God's called me to be. If that's what you want right now, just go ahead and this is your church. Go ahead and lift up your hands. I'm going to pray for you. All right, all over the place. Father, I thank you right now. You would come by the power of the Holy Spirit and you would do a fresh work in us. Father, I thank you that you're the God of truth. I think as we know the truth, as we abide in your words, we shall know the truth, and the truth will set us free. So I declare over this house your freedom. I declare that, Lord, any, anything that would try to come and keep us from being honest, that would, keep us, that would try to keep us in a cycle of, of faking it and pretending, Lord, any, anything that would cause us to think that, God, you would reject us, Lord, I, I take authority over that right now in Jesus' name. Lord, I think that we would be able this year to be transparent like we've never been transparent before. We would lean into you, Jesus. Lord, that we would know that, God, when we're honest with you, you already know who we are. Well, let, let that become the basic conviction of our life, that you already know all our stuff, and you love us with an everlasting love. And Lord, I thank you that we would grow, or you would grow our capacity for Jesus and your kingdom and the power of the Holy Spirit this year. In your name we pray. So Father, I thank you. Right now, there's one baptism, but there are many fillings. As our hands are raised, Holy Spirit, come 
and just fall right now on your sons and your daughters. Holy Spirit, release your power into our lives, into our emotions, into our thinking, into our daily life in the mighty name of Jesus. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Say what you wanna say. Do what you wanna do. Go to work, Holy Spirit. Everyone say, go to work, Holy Spirit. Go to work in our lives so we can be who you've called us to be. There's a world that needs you. Lord, our desire is to grow our capacity for you so we can reach and partner with you, Holy Spirit, those who do not know you in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you that you would surprise this church. Everyone say, Capital Church. Come on. Everyone say, Capital Church. You would surprise us with love. You would surprise us with healings. You would surprise us with salvation stories. You would surprise us with deliverance stories. You would surprise us, God, with like taking people that are so upside down and turning them right side up. You would surprise us with your presence. You would surprise us with your voice. You would surprise us just with your goodness this year in the mighty name of Jesus. Come on, somebody. If you want God this year, give him a hand. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.